Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sfarim Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined once again by Moshe Maimon. I think this is the fifth time. Uh, and, and this time we're going to be discussing his own work once again. We actually discussed this a while ago uh, about Rabbi Avram Ben Harambam. But um, we realized we've had him on a number of times now, but we, we discussed that time, the, the Ramban Rambam, which he did on, by now it's Parashat Shemais. So that those are two volumes, one on Parashat, one on Shemais. And then there's a volume on the small volume on Nagarita, Maimar Al-Agadis, which is what we discussed previously. And we discussed a little bit about the Ramban Rambam and the Chumash, but we didn't discuss enough about it. And that was like a 30-something minute episode. It was in the beginning of the, uh, the beginning of the podcast. And uh, this is this is time to discuss, you know, we've had you now on a bunch of times in the podcast. I think this is time, the time has come to properly discuss to perform a Rambam. And now at this time, you're, it was complete. I think at that time, you hadn't published your mice. So with that whole that introduction, thank you very much for coming on and joining me once again. Thank you very much, Nachi. Thanks again for kicking off the project. And like I say, it's always a great pleasure to be on your podcast. And at the same time, I do beg your listeners' indulgence if we do cover some of the same things we covered in, in that short episode. We'll do it again now in a little fuller, and uh, and hopefully we'll be able to spice with enough new material that uh, it won't get on anyone's nerves. Right. I forgot to add that, that, that we may cover some of the similar things, but like I said, that was over two years ago. It was a while ago, and, and hopefully we do a better job here um, than we did on that episode. So, okay, let's start off with Rabbi Ramadan Rambam. But before we even get to, I mean, what drew you to Rabbi Ramadan Rambam? This you probably have mentioned. Your name is is Maimon, uh, descendant of the Rambam. What, what was what's your shaykh is? Why did you decide to work on Rabbi Ramadan Rambam? Yeah, well, that that is how it started. It started due to you know I felt as a young kid I felt there's a family connection here. Um, this is our legacy. I, I carry his name, the name, the family name. I, sh- I should try to get acquainted with him. Um, you know, the murder of Ufam was obviously way, way beyond the reach. Uh, some of Mishnah Torah I did learn, and I figured, you know, something on Chumash. I like Chumash a lot. Let's try uh, the Pirish on Chumash. And, um, you know, I didn't understand a lot of it at first, but the more times, the more you keep going back to the well and you start appreciating the nuance and, and his particular approach, which we're going to get into later. It's a, quite a unique approach, and it kind of grows on you. And that's uh, I was just totally uh, sucked into his to his world and his you know his way of looking at the world and his approach to chumash, his approach to pshat, his approach to halacha, and everything is just um, it, it was refreshingly unique, original, sensitive, meaningful. And we're going to touch on all these qualities in the course of this episode, I hope. But uh, once it became a, a passion for life, and uh, I couldn't get out of it. So. I mean, but why did, so when and kind of why did you decide I'm going to edit these, edit his writings and put them out now, which is each of the volumes on Chumash are, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen them, big fat volumes, I think they're, let me see, they're, uh, you know, a few hundred pages, six, seven hundred pages. And the one, the one I got at the small, but uh, there's a lot, you did a lot there. So when did you decide, okay, I'm going to do this? This plan, it, it progressed. Um, as I was appreciating learning it and enjoying it, and I'd be scribbling notes in the margins and trying to figure it out, and it was it was it was on the one hand rewarding to be able to understand it, but at the same time frustrating that it was just so cumbersome and so hard to get to the bottom of what he was doing, and, and the print was bad, and, and the syntax is, is hard to understand, and, and the presentation without paragraphs and sentences, and it was just very difficult to use. So it was uh, you know it started nagging me that. 
such a wonderful safer is not more readily a, accessible physically that people can go and buy it. It was already becoming rare and, and hard to find. And B, that it's just hard to learn because of the way it's presented. So I started dreaming of an idea that maybe I should uh, reprint it, uh, you know, just but just with a nice new layout, nice new typography, and without getting too much into it. And I actually decided one Rosh Hashanah, I made a New Year's uh, resolution that, yes, yeah, so this is the year I should work on that. I'm not anyone that can, uh, you know, write too many notes on it, but I didn't plan on writing notes on it. I was just going to have it retypeset and published nicely. At the time, there was no digital version available. So I I copied all the pages. I, I OCR'd them, and then I looked against the original and corrected them by hand, added in all the psukim. I did all this by hand. Uh, a short while later, a digital version became available, and... Um, you know, there it, it was there was a, a little twinge of regret that maybe I should have uh, waited and saved myself a lot of trouble. But on the other hand, just the going through it over and over again and, and typing and reading and putting in the psukim and seeing where they belong, and that it, it, it gave me a whole new dimension, a whole new familiarity with some of the more subtle, you know, aspects of the peers, which maybe uh, don't jump out at you at first, but as you're you know, looking at it carefully, you're picking up a lot of gems. And so it really was a very, very worthwhile experience. That was in the initial stages. And then um, as I was learning more about it and appreciating more about it, I would add some notes that I can explain it according to this. I can explain it according to that. At the same time, I would be going through all of the Rashis, Rambans, Ibn Ezra's, Sephornos, you know, every, all the Mepharshim and the Mepharshim Gedalis, and making a comparative study. Um, especially the Rambam, I would look up any relevant Rambam, I would search it, I had some of the, you know, the Rambam, there's collections of Rambam Altair, various different editions, I would use those, I was using all the, you know, all the, you know, aids that I could, and together I was drawing on, um, you know, the the background needed to understand the context of Rabbeinu of Rambam Rambam, um, and I was writing these notes, again, it wasn't that uh, major, and I have thought, all right, I'll add some notes, and it was, uh, be a nice volume, not to, not too hefty, not too big, still one volume. Um, but you know, after a couple of years, I was advised by my friends that you know you're you're in this this deep already. It makes sense to really do a they didn't use the term critical edition, but but do a do a good job and get into every pasuk and explain every single thing, what he's coming to answer and why. Um, and so when I when I added that dimension, now I started learning the sources that Rabbi Avram himself learned instead of doing a comparative study of what it means to me holding him against the other Mepharshim and the Mekroi's Gedalis, I started looking, what did he learn? He used Ripsadia going. So I went through the Targum of Ripsadia, which is available. Ripsadia wrote to Pirush, and we'll get into Ripsadia's approach a little bit later, but I, I would use Ripsadia, I would use Ripsmol ben Chafni. Now I would place more of an emphasis on Ibn Ezra, because these, these are the sources that he quotes a lot, and I would add that now. So, you know, not just a comparative study, but also understanding where he's coming from and the way he's learning and the approach. So it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then as I thought I was finishing that phase, then Professor Friedman, who I'd been in contact with over the years, you know, for help in specific, you know, Arabic words and phrases to help me work with those, he suggests, he's like, you know, you're, you're in this enough. At this point, you should really start taking a chryas for the, for the translation as well. And you should, you know, go through the translation and revise it as necessary. And so I, I delayed the project for another few years while I worked on that angle. And at this point, it had metastasized into two big volumes, and again, I'm, I'm sorry that there may be those that don't like the format, but this is this is the the all 
all out experience. You get the entire seven years worth of research and uh, learning for producing this Kirish. Okay, so you mentioned the translation. We'll discuss more. We should mention originally it was written in Arabic. So this is like a lot of Rishayim did at the Tkufa. They wrote in Arabic. The Rambam did a lot of his farm, not all, but a lot of his farm in Arabic as well. This has been translated. Okay, let's move away just a little bit from the actual Pirish and let's move to Rav himself for those not familiar. I think we did discuss this a while ago, but it's a while ago. We should, you know, rediscuss this. Maybe we'll discuss something new. So Rav Avram ben Rambam, we know who his father was. Was the Rambam, but uh, talk about when was he born, where was he born, and his his early early okay. parts of his life. Yeah, Rabbi Avram ben Rambam was born to his father in the year 1186 in Cairo. Now, to understand uh, where the Rambam was at this point, you have to understand the Rambam was born in Cordova in Spain. The Rambam was part of the, the rich intellectual Andalusian Jewry, but he was from the rabbinical branch of that Jewry. You know, the 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 intellects were all men of letters, and they would they would write poetry, and they would write works on uh, on grammar and language. Of course, they uh, they studied Chumash and the Gemara, you know, to some degree. But it, it was with an intellectual bent, whereas the rabbis would focus more on the Gemara and uh, the Chumash, of course, more on the sources, more on the halacha, but informed, of course, with an appreciation of of letters as well. And, and uh, so that's why in in the Rambam's own works. You see a familiarity with with Dikduk and a familiarity with with Shira and Piyot and poetry, but not a big emphasis. And and in fact, even disdains those who 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 placed uh, too great an emphasis on it because you know familiarity is one thing, but to him the Iker was, of course, harmonizing uh, the Torah with 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 reason and getting to the bottom of it, establishing a clear halachic precedent for everything, and and mastering uh, the Torah Shabbat Shalom Torah Shabbat Shalom. That was by him, the Iker. Um, and uh, the Rambam himself worked on, on these in these fields. He, he, his, his first work was the Pirish Mishnayis, which he started in Spain. He finished uh, as you know along the journey when you know he was forced out of Spain from the uh, from the persecutions of the radical fanatical Almohads, and uh, he had to leave Spain, went to Morocco, stopped off in Israel, eventually settling in Egypt. At which time, about that time, is when he completed the Pirish Mishnayis. Then he embarked. While a young rabbi in Egypt, still um, not the head of the community, but a prominent person in the community, he started working on his Mishnah Torah. And he still had time. He was not. He was still being supported by his brother, his younger brother, who had, was a successful businessman. So he had time to uh, devote to his Mishnah Torah and his learning. And um, we don't know much about his family life at the time. Either he, he was married, and his, and his wife had passed away, or he only got married later. We don't know. But it's only later, about the time when he finishes writing the Mishnah Torah, that he has his son, who, as far as we know, and it appears uh, from Geniza documents that this is the case, he has his only son. He may have had daughters as well, but his only son, Rabbeinu Avram ben Arambam. And about the same time that he finishes writing the Mishnah Torah, tragedy strikes, and he loses his brother. And uh, his brother, who, has, uh, who, like we said, was a businessman, would travel... The, the route to China and India and bring back merchandise. And, and it was a very precarious position because uh, boats were often lost at sea. And eventually, Rabbi David himself suffered that fate. The younger brother of the Rambam, who the Rambam says was like a son to him. And he was, it, it just it shook his world. First of all, he fell into depression for a long time, he writes. And he, now he became responsible for Rabbi David's family. 
Zavid, in addition to being his supporter, was like a family member, like his son, he says. And uh, therefore, it was a big upheaval in the Rambam's life. He was forced now to earn a living, which he did by uh, becoming the physician in the sultan's court. Uh, and and uh, on top of that, he had, uh, he had this is when he started, uh, when he went away from the Mishnah Torah, he finished the Mishnah Torah, he had to, he probably had less less time now for his personal study and his, you know, the, the remaining literary creativity that he had, he devoted to writing the Moronavuchim, answering questions, of course, although his day was very, very uh, occupied now with work as in the Sultan's court and as well as communal responsibilities that he had to take on. It was at this time that Rabbeinu Avram was born into this very, uh, very busy, this very, very busy life of the Rambam. Now, Rabbeinu Avram, the son, was trained by his father. His father, you know, would, uh, we have evidence that his father would let him sit in on, on meetings with important people while he was still a young child. There's, there's, there's Geniza evidence, you know, accounts of, of people who come to visit the Rambam and, uh, you know, converse with the son who was there. He himself talks about learning in the yeshiva with the other Talmidim and the Rambam's interaction with other Talmidim. So he gets all his uh, training now from the Rambam. So part of that training includes uh, philosophy, which is the basis of the Moronavuchim, but a very big part of it is uh, learning the Mishnah Torah, learning the Rif, learning the Gemara, and also uh, learning Chumash. And we know about learning the Chumash from uh, the Pierce, where he quotes his father's opinion on a lot of these matters. So Rabbeinu Avram himself gets a very good training from uh, the Rambam. He doesn't learn anywhere else as far as we know. He just learns by the Rambam. And he gets to the point, and the, and the Rambam talks with pride about his son. While, while he was still, uh, you know, young, in his young teens, 14 or 15, the Rambam refers to him in a letter as somebody that was endowed with great intelligence and, and beautiful midas. And the Rambam reveals that he, was, that he named his son Avraham after his own favorite hero, who's Avraham Avinu. That's what the Rambam writes. And, and, uh, and Avraham, you know, he says, my son Avraham is worthy of carrying the name of Avraham Avinu because he, he carries on his traditions perfectly. And he says, Belize Suffolk, I have no doubt that this son of mine will be one of the future greats of, of our nation. A short while later, the Rambam died when the Rabbeinu Avram was only 19 years old, but the community concurred with the Rambam's assessment, and they asked him to take uh, to assume his father's uh, leadership role in the community. Eventually, there's a, even a title that's associated with that. We don't know that the Rambam carried this title, but the, the title that, the, that Rabbeinu Avram gets in this leadership role is the Nugget, the prince. That such a title was used in Baghdad for the communal leaders in Baghdad. Now the Egyptians community, the Egyptian community uses this title as well. And it's, it's held, the first person to actually hold the title is Rabbeinu Avram. And all his children, descendants for the next five or six generations, carry the same title as well. Rabbeinu Avram lived a short life, relatively speaking. He died in 1237. But during that time, you know, for, as you know, assuming the leadership role at the age of 19, he also followed his father into the Sultan's court where he served as one of the main physicians. We have an interesting uh, account of him from, uh, there's a Muslim historian who gives an account of all the physicians he met. And he describes Rabbeinu Avram in a few sentences as tall and slender, quiet, but intelligent. He refers to him in very in positive, uh, with very positive descriptions. So we, we know he made, he made a very nice impression. He was the leader of his community. He had his own base medrash in addition to running the communal affairs of, of the Egyptian community. He had his own base medrash where he practiced some pietist uh, practices. We can get into that in a little bit. 
But um, so he was he had a, he had a, you know an influence on his small group of followers as well as on the, the larger community. He would answer questions from as far away as Yemen. You know, Yemen had a tradition of venerating the Rambam, which they continued with his son and 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 further descendants. So he was busy with writing um, responses to them. He had a very good relationship with the rabbis of province who had passed through Egypt on their way to, the, you know, the, the, the rabbis of province who, who come from the uh, school of the Bali Taisvis. He, you know, they met with him. They were very impressed with him. So we, they carried on a nice uh, correspondence as well. We have some Hebrew shuvis that he wrote in, you know, in Hebrew. Most of his writings were addressed to Arab, Judeo-Arabic-speaking people, but he would write to these rabbis in um, in, in uh, Hebrew. So we have, you know, we know, you know, he carried on an active correspondence with them as well. Um, tragically, he died young. It appears that there was a, it was a, some kind of pandemic, which, which claimed his life at the young age of, uh, in his fifties. So it's, um, but, but by that time, he had already managed to leave over quite a considerable literary legacy. And, um, and, and, and he was venerated throughout, throughout the region by all those who know him. So you mentioned something there interesting. You mentioned his uh, pietistic tendencies. I think some call him Rama Chassid, right? I think sure. he's, he's known as... So the Rambam is not known as, as, as a Chassid. The Rambam is a philosopher. Um, so kind of two questions. This, this pietist, These pietistic tendencies, how does this compare with the Rambam? Where did he get it from? And also philosophy. How does you know, the Rambam being the Marnebuchim and, and philosophy and the philosopher? Was a Ram like that or not? It's a good question. It's a good question because to the observer now, separated by 800 years or so, um, just reading their works, it, they do seem uh, very divergent. It does seem the Rambam where he does mention, you know, the pietistic practices of, of uh, what, we, what we know now as the, the Sufis, which is a, a Muslim pietistic sect. Uh, he refers to those who follow those practices as extremists. He denigrates it as it's, uh, it's, it's necessary maybe as a curative you, you know, an approach just for, for people who need it, but it's certainly not, not the ends. And people who make an ends out of it are foolish and they're wrong. So he doesn't have a, he, doesn't, he does not have, uh, he doesn't mince words. He, he does not hold of it at all. Whereby Rabbeinu Avram not only speaks so laudatorily about these practices, but he, he implements a lot of them and, and, and he, he advises people to follow them. So that's kind of hard to, to jive his opinion in that regard. With the Ramam's uh, writings. Now, it is very important to remember that the writings are not the whole man. And Rabbeinu Avram ben Aram himself, he certainly felt that he was entirely in consonance with his father's approach. He takes great pains to mention that all the time. Um, perhaps, perhaps there's a different audience. The Rambam's audience may not have been uh, Rabbeinu Avram ben Aram's audience. There may have been different trends, and they had to address and, and pivot and adjust to, uh, to to different norms. You know, that's that's um, you have to bear that in mind. Then also, there is an approach which does seek to harmonize, um, you know, as, as much as possible. There's going to be some degree of difference, but uh, that's natural. But th- th- there is also an approach that seeks to harmonize it as well. So it's a very good question. Uh, I'll give you an example: the Rambam's um, the Rambam's own interest in philosophy is very celebrated to this very day. The Rambam's Merdivuk was built on philosophy. And it would seem that the Rambam, uh, you know, what he writes about, he believes that uh, part of philosophy is, uh, is Maise Merkava, part of it is Maise Beratius, you know, the more scientific, what we call it now, science, which was included then in philosophy. 
That's a Maisa Bracious according to the Rambam. So philosophy plays a very prominent role in the Rambam's thoughts. Now, how much of that was the Rambam's, uh, you know, was, was it his personal shita? Was he brought up that way? Did he give it over to his kids? Well, we have a very interesting Geniza document, which was published, you know, over 100 years ago. And it's, uh, you know, it's been forgotten, but it's now getting some, some more press. And this is written by who we now know as Rabbeinu Avram's father-in-law. Rabbeinu Avram's father-in-law, who was also part of this pietistic school, pietistic base medrash. And he himself was a student of the Rambam. His name was Rabbeinu Hanan al-Hadayan. He was, uh, for a while, people, you know, who did, most people never heard of him, but people who did would confuse him with Rabbeinu Hanan on the side of the Gemara. It's a different Rabbeinu Hanan. This is Rabbeinu Hanan Hadayan, then Rabbeinu Hanal ben Shmuel, he was a Dayan in Egypt, he was a Dayan on the Rambam's Bezdin towards the end of the Rambam's life, and uh, he, his daughter married Rabbeinu Avram, and he writes about Rabbeinu Hagadol, which is how they refer to the Rambam, he's writing against, uh, you know, people, there was, I guess there were some students who felt they should follow the Rambam's example and, and immerse themselves in philosophy, and uh, Rabbeinu Hanal writes, you know, philosophy is good, but don't go, don't go too far with philosophy. Even Rabbeinu Hagadol, he said, that's not the training he got, we know his father, Rabbeinu Maimon, was not overly uh, immersed in philosophy. And uh, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't the Rambam's way. You know, he himself was a genius. He was brilliant, which, by the way, this puts to bed that story uh, quoted. Uh, there's a story in, you know, Shalshelis HaKabbalah peddles the story, and it's quoted again in Seder HaDairis. So in some of the books, you know, in some of the more popular children books about the Rambam, you'll see the story about how the Rambam was really an, an ignoramus at a very young age, and his father was so frustrated with him, and then he devoted himself to learning, and miraculously developed into into the Rambam. But uh, this 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 document puts that to rest. No, he's because Rabbi Nachman writes he was a genius from birth. He, there was nothing he didn't learn. There was nothing he wasn't capable of. He knew he, he had to know everything. So he went philosophy, but that wasn't part of his upbringing. It wasn't part of his training. That wasn't the way he lived. And um, we know, interestingly. There's a very, you know, from on the other end, later, a few generations later, we have Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kasbi, a provincial uh, rationalist from the, from the extreme rationalists. He wrote Pirish, Ibn Kasbi appears on Rambam, appears on Chumash, with, with ultra-rationalistic tendencies to the point where some people would even consider him beyond the pale of orthodoxy. Be that as it may, Ibn Kasbi put his money where his mouth is. And he said, I'm a student of the Rambam. I've got to go and study at the feet of the Maimonidean descendants who, who, who know the Rambam better than anyone. And in those days, it wasn't easy to travel from province to Egypt, but he undertook the journey. He got there and he wrote about it in his, uh, you know, in his other forum. And he says, I was terribly disappointed when I got there because I found that the Rambam, he, he met Rabbeinu Avram's son and grandson. And he writes, I found that they're Shlishi, they're Vi, they're wonderful tzaddikim. They're great, holy, pious Jews, but they know very little Chachma. And he, was, uh, he wasted his time, totally wasted his time. And he calls it, you know, he quotes a Pusik about people who go to Mitzrayim looking for, for, for salvation and don't find it. He was very upset. Now, uh, it's interesting to us because Rabbi Avram talks very positively about philosophy where it's necessary. You know, if you, Pirushim and Chumash, where it comes up, he'll mention them. One of them, uh, I'll just throw out just to help give you an example about what kind of thing you'll find in, in, in the Pirish where it says that the Tzifardea died. He talks about, well, is a dead Tzifardea still called a Tzifardea? Or is it not? Because Hashem said he's going to remove the Tzfardeya, but they only died, they didn't get removed. So he quotes, uh, he, he quotes you know, a philosophical concept, which I, I examined, I found that it, this is a, you know, it's, it's a basic Aristotelian concept, that a dead, uh, a dead animal only bears the name in, 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 a very, in a very loosely borrowed way as that of a live animal, because they're two totally different things. 
later um, later scholars have mocked that. Just uh, I know you have an interest in Italian Jewry. That Munas Hachamim from Rabbi Vayad Sar Shalom Bazila. He he criticizes. He laughs and scoffs at the idea. That's what actually alerted to me that hey, that's the idea that Rabbi Ram was talking about. And I did the research and, and found it. So you know that's so he he'll use he'll draw on philosophical concepts as necessary. Of course, he quotes Meir and Nebuchadnezzar wherever possible, and of course he 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 considers it the Holy Grail. But again, there's not an overemphasis on philosophy. And the reason being because it's possible that the Rambam, despite all his interest in philosophy, understood that that's not for everybody. It's not the way he raised his kids. It's not the way he was raised. It's not the way he raised his kids. It's not the way he tried to influence the community. So that might have to say, to the same, you know, that might have an influence on the question at hand also about, you know, the pietistic tendencies of Rabbeinu Avram. He felt it's fully in consonance with the way he was brought up by the Rambam. And who knew better than him? So it's a complicated question with no easy answers. Okay, so you mentioned Rebbechanan al-Hadayin, Rambam Rambam's father-in-law, so he, we do have now a published commentary on Erevin from uh, Machon Ofek. They published from him, so... They have from him on Erevin, they have from him on Kiddushin. There's, uh, there's a lot of Geniza fragments from him which are coming to light, but it was only about 50 years ago. You know, they know him from the Geniza already for a long time before that, and even the Shem Hagdalim mentions him. His, his name had come up, and the Shem Hagdalim talks about people confusing with Rebbechanan al-Hadayin, but we did not know about the family connection until Goitain discovered it and he published it in the in the Jubilee edition of the Tarbits. He published a very seminal article on the subject. And we finally and, and he even then he wasn't sure of it, but later scholars like Paul Fenton and others, they found even further evidence and now it's uh, beyond question. This is the Rambam's father in law. Uh, sorry, Bainov Ram's father in law. Yeah, now now um just one more thing on their connection. Did he? So do we know who Rabbi Ram's Rabbein were? I guess I assume it was the Rambam. That was that was where he he learned under and maybe his father in law? Um, his father probably had some influence on him with the uh, with this Derech Hasidus, uh, this base medrash that we, you know Rabbi Ben didn't found this base medrash, but he did lead the base medrash. Um, there was there was an earlier scholar there also called Rabbi Avram Hachasid. Rabbi Avram Ben Arabam refers to his friend and colleague. Apparently, he was a little older than him, like in, in some ways a mentor. But this colleague he refers to as Rabbi Avram Hachasid. We we now know his full name from the Geniza. But this this Rabbi Ram was uh, had an influence on him in there's in, in you know in this space measure of Hasidus. So that apparently was another influence in his life, which may not be directly from the Rambam, although these were Talmudim of the Rambam. And I want to point something out with with this Rabbi Ram Hasid. There's something very interesting because the Rabbi Avram will quote a long section from his commentary at the end of Parshas Mishpatim. You know, he, he used his his his, his contemporaries Pirushim. He quotes a long piece from Rabbi Ramachasid. And, you know, upon further examination, as I'm examining it, Rabbi Ramachasid is explaining the Psukim. He's, he's really just expanding on something that the Rambam himself wrote in Mori Nebuchim. So it's interesting to me that Rabbi Avram, the son of the Rambam, would, instead of citing Mori Nebuchim, he cites Rabbi Ramachasid's explanation, which is based on Mori Nebuchim, Probably because it was obvious to all that Rabbi Ram HaChassid, as a student of the Rambam and part of that orbit, well, of course he's explaining according to the Rambam. And Rabbi Ram doesn't see it, you know, he doesn't even need to mention it because it was so obvious. So these are people that are part of the Rambam's orbit, although they had their, like, you know, this, this private base medish. For all we know, maybe the Rambam daven there too. You know, we don't, we don't know that. He may have daven there. He may have liked some of their uh, practices, which so this is the kind of thing we can't know with such a distance of time, but it's, it's, it's very likely that it did occur because these are students of the Rambam. And so, but the main influence, of course, is the Rambam. But again, there is this other basic metrics that he was shy to. Okay. So I, I just want to work actually a little backwards here for a second. So you mentioned Rambam and his, his, his writings. Let's talk a little bit about his writings other than the 
Chumash commentary, which we'll get we'll get to more in a minute. Okay, so a lot of his writings are based on uh, his, his, you know, his father's legacy, and this is another way where we see that Rabbi Avram views himself as a you know continuing and defending and totally living the experience of his father's legacy. So there's the the first set of works that um, that we should mention are his his chuvis, his responsa. There's three collections of his responses. The, the first two uh, center around the Rambam's writings. Number one is what is the collection that's that has the name, you know, not given to him by Rabbi Ram himself, but the name that was published under Maisa Nisim. Maisa Nisim is his answers to the criticisms of Rabbi Daniel Habavli. Rabbi Daniel Habavli, you know, another personality that we don't know enough about. There was a relationship with the Rambam. There was some degree of respect, but there's also um, there's some friction there as well. This Rabbi Daniel is probably a student of, and we, we do know that he's a student of of the of the of the, you know, the schools in Bavel. She was in Bavel, who did feel somewhat usurped by the Rambam's svarim and popularity. So that may have been a motivational factor. But Rabbi Daniel Bavli was a great Talmachacham, and he wrote criticisms of first of the Sefer HaMitzvahs of the Rambam, and then later of the Mishnah of the Rambam. Now, the criticisms on the Sefer HaMitzvah, which is a Sefer the Rambam wrote in Judeo-Arabic, Rabbi Daniel's criticisms are written in Judeo-Arabic, and Rabbi Avram ben Rambam answers them in the aforementioned Sefer Maisenism, again, in Judeo-Arabic, in you know, the language that they were in. It. That's one collection of Shubas. Then the next collection is uh, what's known as Birkas Avram. Again, not a name that he gave it, the name that was given in Europe by the publishers when it was first published, Birkas Avram. And that's the answers to Rabbi Daniel's Questions on Mishnah Torah. Now, Mishnah Torah is a sefer written in, in Hebrew. Rabbi Daniel's questions are written in Hebrew, and Rabbi Avram's answers are also written in Hebrew. So these are two collections where are dedicated just to defending the Ramam's positions. Talmud HaChachamim know these Sfarim. Well, today they're included in, um, for the most part, in one way or another, they're all included in, in the Shabti Frankel Rambam. The actual Sfarim were somewhat rare, but the, the, you know, they were excerpted. You know, I'll say the Haramah and published in the Shabbat Frankel Ramam, but Talmud Chacham know these because um, Rabbi Rucham Fischel Perla, in his work on Rabbi Sadiagain, he makes very great use of these Svarim. He usually finds in favor of Daniel Habavli. That's my personal ire, but he does uh, he does give them a lot of press, and that's and he, he learns them up, and he asks, and he answers, and he goes through the sugi according to them. So that's a very important window into understanding, you know, the the school of you know thought that that these Rishonim exhibit. So that's the Chuvis. And then the third collection of Chuvis is his own savior of Chuvis published by Mekitsin Erdomim. That's Chuvis Rabbeinu Avram Ben Arambam. Um, again, there were some Hebrew ones in there which were written to scholars uh, for, you know, from southern France and province. There's a lot of, mostly they're in the Judeo-Arabic, some are into Yemen, some to the other places. A lot of them deal with, um, it, it, interestingly, questions on, on Tanakh, questions on Hashkafa, a lot of Besdin questions about Yerushas, about Gittin, about the Dine Mominus. There's a lot of that in there. There's some other interesting things there about uh, you know political things going on with the with the the Reish Galus and Bavel. So that, that's uh, you know this the stuff you know a collection of, of the writings from his desk, which landed in this third collection of response, and that's Chuvis Rabbeinu of Rambam. So that's the first category is his Chuvis, and we see that a big emphasis there is defending his the, the, his father's works. The second uh, safer that we know from him, and this we only have uh, fragments of it. But he did uh, set to writing a work that the Rambam wishes he had written himself. The Rambam writes in his Tshuva to Rapinchas Adayin. by the way, is a Talmud Chacham who was the Dayan in Alexandria, but he was not, uh, 
he's not an Egyptian Jew. He was uh, from also from province who had found refuge in Mitzrayim. And the Rambam, respecting his Talmudic abilities, was influential in getting him to the post as the Dayan Alexandria. And they, they carried on a correspondence in Hebrew, which is the language that Rapinchas understood best. And uh, in his Chubat to Rapinchas Adayan, the Rambam writes there about his regret for not explaining where, how he arrived at all the halachas he arrived at at Mishnah Torah. And uh, he says he wished he would have time and he wished he had the ability to, to write a companion volume which would explain how he got there. So Rabbeinu Avram ben Rambam tried to fill his father's shoes in this regard and write such a chibur. Now how far we, he got, we don't know for sure. He writes about how he was busy working with it. He writes that in the Maimar al-Agadis, some fragmentary evidence does exist for such, such work. Recently, a, a page or two on Brachis came to light that may have been related to this Hebrew, you know, page on the Gemara and, and the Riff and Brachis, which may have been, you know, dedicated to explain the Sugya, to explain the Ramam. It's not, not clear where it came from, but it's, it's likely related to that work. So that's another work that he was engaged in, 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 uh, in defending the Rambam or explaining the Rambam. Um, a third work, another one of his famous works is, uh, is a treatise called Melchama Hashem, the Battles of the Lord. And this was written... In response, this was written in Hebrew, written to people that uh, that you know may have uh, known about the the ban on the Rambam's works and that heard reports of the of the burning of the Meir Nebuchim. That the and, and Rabbi Avram writes this almost at the end of his life. He writes this in response to those reports where he defends the Rambam's uh, opinions. He defends his his positions of Meir Nebuchim, and he says that anyone that's uh, you know who takes umbrage at these positions and he's is probably because he's a corporate realist, he's a magshim, which is what the Rambam's fought so hard against, and therefore um, everybody should see that the you know it's it's the wrong approach, and the Rambam's is the right approach. So that's another work he wrote in defense of of the Rambam's um, work. Uh, the most famous, perhaps, is which is his magnum opus, is the Sefer Hamas Bikla Ovdei Hashem. Hamas Bikli Ovdi Hashem, again, did not survive in its entirety, although he did finish this work. There is evidence that he finished it. He, re- he refers in the parts that we have to parts that we don't have, and that enabled scholars to try to construct what the original Sefer must have looked like. We have a full Sefer from this larger Sefer. We have a, a chalik on what we call the chalik hamusser, an ethical part of the, of the work, and that's been around for, you know, for 80, 90 years now. There's another uh, volume, which was came, you know, only around for 30 or so years, although scholars had excerpted from this uh, manuscript as well, uh, well over 100 years ago. So uh, there's another volume that came out published by Barilan is the Sefer Hamasbik on Hilchas Tefillah. It's from the Halachic part. So they come from two different volumes in this uh, magnum opus called Sefer Hamasbik, Lov the Hashem. What is Sefer Hamasbik, Lov the Hashem? Should we get into that, Nachi? Why not? So you can get in a little bit. Sure. Okay, let's say, uh, let's give the... the the brief synopsis, Hamas Beklov De Hashem is um, what I view it as it was meant as a, as a companion to the Mishnah Torah. The Mishnah Torah is halachic. It might be, you know, it's written in, in, in the Ramam's very rich language, and the Ramam does spice it with uh, little vignettes of Musr and, 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 and his own ideas and advice, but largely it's halachic. And uh, so I, I think that the Sefer Hamas, which was written in Judeo Arabic, was probably written to fill the uh, you know, to, to fill it in, to give a companion, to give an appreciation of the background of the halacha, to fill in areas which are not addressed as well. Given, you know, for example, it probably included a pirish on the Haggadah Shel Pesach, which is not in there. It, in, it, it includes a, a lot about the background of tefillah. 
and it, it expands on things that the Ramam says. And when it gets too technical, Rabbeinu Avram will even write in this masbik, he'll say, and refer to what, you know, for the rest of the rules, refer to what my father wrote in, in the Mishnah Torah. So he was, you know, writing in the vernacular, giving an appreciation. Now, there was also another goal of the Sefer, you know, just the way it was constructed. It was supposed to draw somebody, and this is the way, where the title comes from, Hamasbik Le'ovde Hashem. It was supposed to show, guide someone to uh, achieving perfection. Achieving ethical and moral perfection, which would, which would guide him towards the, you know, the final volume, which includes the ethical safer that we mentioned. It also included in lost in the, you know, in sections that are now lost. It includes ways to try to uh, attain ruach hakodesh, attain communion with Hashem, a certain level of, uh, of spiritual ecstasy, and that's um, that's related to the pietistic goals of this base medrash that he ran and. Um, Maybe that wasn't for everybody, but somebody uh, that got to that madrig, they needed a guide, and this safer, at, at least the end of it, did provide that guide. Portions of this safer, um, like I said, were known to scholars for a while. The Musser part was first published by Samuel Rosenblatt, whose father was the famous Yossel Rosenblatt. Samuel traveled to Israel specifically to learn Arabic. You know, I, uh, I found a cute mention of him in in Eisenstein's uh, Masois, Eisenstein's journeys, David Eisenstein writes, you know, you know, I found on the on the boat traveling to Israel with me the son of Chazim Yasser Rosenblatt. He was going to Israel to learn Arabic. He said, so he translated from the Arabic into English. He called it the Highways to Perfection. The common edition today is the um, is the Feldheim edition, which is a Hebrew translation of the English translation of the Arabic translation. Although it was fixed up by Rabbi Winselberg. From Miami, he did fix up the translation where possible, and, and his English translation is eminently more readable and more accurate than the original Rosenblatt edition, and I highly recommend it. I use it myself uh, a lot, and, and, and that's, so that's, the, that's what's available as far as the Muster Safer. And like we said, the Barilan edition, it came out in, in 89. It was again reissued recently, supposedly a corrected edition, but nobody knows exactly what was corrected, when it was corrected, and how it was corrected. Okay, right. Those are available. Also, you mentioned Sammy Rosenblatt. I think he was a professor. He also translated to so by his English edition of Amunus Vedas, Rip Sajigai. Yes. That, that he did as well. Yeah, he so, made good use of his Arabic. Yeah. So now the Muhammad Hashem, also you mentioned of Ram. So there's the Masada of Cook edition. And also in English, uh, Dr. Fred Rosner translated it. Uh, so you can get an English edition of that as well. That English edition is, uh, is it also has a very, very good biographical uh, introduction, as you know, which discusses a lot of what we discuss and, and, and more. So that's, you want to understand the the Maimonidean controversies? It gives you a good synopsis into into that as well. So yeah, I, I recommend that book too. Yeah, I'll try to put links to this stuff in the show's notes. Um, okay, now we come to his Pirush and Chumash, which we left out. Uh, the Maimonidean got I got this. I want to say not for you So that we dedicated the previous episode to. So I don't know how much we'll get into it. Isn't that old episode? I'll 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 put the link to that episode in the show's notes here. I don't want to go. Because that's a separate thing we discussed. That's a short thing. I think with your note, you could talk about it just one side, but that's, it's like a 200 page safer. There's a hundred pages of the Memorial Gadata and with your notes, which is, and then there's a uh, hundred pages of your own countries in there. So that's a very, very small thing. If you want to just say a, a word about it. Uh, you just, uh, just to fill out the picture here, the Memorial Gadata, as I mentioned on that episode, was originally part of this safer Masbik as well. So that's like another, another section of this. You know, it contained the chapter on, on the approach to Agada, you know, something that you're not going to find in a Mishnah Torah, but something that, of course, informs the student of Mishnah Torah about the approach to Agadah. And that's, that was in this Sefer as well. 
And one other, uh, you know, one other feature of that, uh, of, of the Maimar al-Gadis, which is relevant to what we've discussed now, is that the Rabbeinu Avram writes there that his father wanted to write such a Maimar to explain how to approach Agadim and didn't have a chance, which is why he's doing it. So again, you see uh, Rabbeinu Avram trying to fill in the gaps of his father's literary legacy and, and again, viewing himself as completely um, the heir to his father's uh, spiritual, intellectual, and literary heritage. Okay, so let's go to the Pirish Nechomish. So first of all, just get it out of the way. There is only Pirish Nechomish. The rest doesn't exist. I know I'm, I'm asked this. I'm sure you're asked this many, many more times than I am. I, I have no personal connection to this. But it's only Pirish Nechomish. You'll talk about this. He never wrote the rest of it. So don't expect any more to come out. But uh, let, let, let's talk about the commentary on Chomish. Okay, so uh, um, did he even write more? I, I'm of the opinion that he did not. Um, because um, we have we have Rabbein Avram talking about this Pirish himself in a letter that he wrote in, in the original Hebrew. Um, and he writes there that he, and the letter was written about five years before he, before he died. And he writes then that he started working on this Pirish. He says, I finished the Sefer Hamaspik. I've disseminated that. I'm, I've started working on the Pirish now. I, apparently he was asked for, uh, you know, he was asked for, somebody had heard he was working on it and, and wanted a copy of the Sefer and also apparently a, a Hebrew-speaking rabbi because he wrote the letter in, uh, in Hebrew. He says, so I started working on the Pirish but I'm only about halfway through Beratius now. now. It would take me only a year or so to finish it, he says, but I hardly have any time to work on it because of my communal responsibilities and my, sponsor, my responsibilities to the, you know, in, in, as, as a court physician. I don't have time to work on it. Um, so I, I, and even if I had time to work on it and finish it, I still wouldn't be able to give it to you right away because it would have to be, uh, I'd have to go over it. I'd have to have it uh, checked and, and, and edited, and then I'd have to have it translated for you. So therefore, uh, he, he turns down the request, but at the same time, he does tell us a lot about the peers. So I think that um, at the rate he was going, he managed to finish Sefer Shemais, but I don't think he got much further. Um, and, and, and another um, indication of that is because the manuscript we have, and I'll talk a little bit more about the manuscript, but the manuscript we have is copied from an earlier manuscript, which I believe was probably Rabbi Ram Ramam's uh, original manuscript, the one that we have ends at, after Shemais, and there's a, a lengthy colophon, which is the where the scribe would write, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of put his signature, put his his, his stamp, his, his personality. He'd write a little why he wrote it, when he wrote it, and include a blessing for the donor or the patron who had sponsored the project. So this is a, that was the end of his job. The end of his job finished at Shemais. I believe it's it's likely that that's all there was. If there were any other fragments, it didn't amount to much. And um, those are, if there were any, they're, they're lost forever. So Bereshit and Shemais is all we have. Um, people were confused about whether there were more coming because I put out first the Bereshit then put out a Shemais. So to solve that problem, I did print, I, I had a slipcase made. Now it looks like a set. So hopefully that, that indicates people, this is all there is. Now, unfortunately, even in the manuscript that we do have on Bereshit and Shemais, we're missing the beginning of the Sefer, which most likely had an introduction, as well as the first 20 chapters. It, 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 the Sefer starts essentially in the middle of chapter 20, although one, um, there was one section from the missing, you know, the one, one part of the earlier section did survive, and that's the end of chapter 1, Parak Aleph, the beginning of Parak Beza, and Parshas Bereshis, and but after that, it's it's it, there's nothing on Restabratius, Nayach, or Lechacha, and it only picks up the beginning of Vayera and, and Parak Chaf. So it's a, uh, and, and the parts that we have on Beratius are considerable. Just the end of Perak Aleph and the beginning of Perak Bays. It's likely it was a good chalik of the Sefer that has gone missing. Um, 
efforts are now underway to try to reconstruct what we can from other documentary and fragmentary evidence to, to, to what might have been contained in there. I found some other manuscripts. I found quotations to pieces of Sefer Amaspik, which are relevant. So I've been trying, you know, in the Sefer itself, at the end of Barashas, I found a piece of uh, Maspik that had never been published, and I translated it into, into Hebrew and put it at the end of Parashat Barashas. I've since been working on more, again, small, but I found more for Barashas and for Parashas Nayach. I'm working on something for Lech Lecha, so uh, maybe in future editions I'll be able to fill in the gap ever so slightly, but again, it, it's a tragic loss, which will never be, can never be recouped without the original Sefer. Okay, so when 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 did he write this period? And you said you have this letter from him towards the end of his life. And why do we know why he decided to write a commentary in Chumash? So we we don't have his introduction. Now the Rambam wrote introductions to all svarim in Ashkenaz. That wasn't the minute to write introductions, but in in Spain and 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 uh, and in Bavel and 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 all those who followed in their footsteps, like the Rambam, that was the approach that they would write introductions. So it's likely that this. Peers did have an introduction in, in which Rabbeinu Ram, ben Aram himself would have given the answers to these questions. We can only surmise, um, and it's, it's, it's a good guess, I think, but not complete. What does the peer, you know, judging by the nature of the peerish, first of all, it may be also to fill in the gap. Maybe that's one of the works that the Ramam never, never wrote. The Ramam did not write any svarim on Mikra. There is, there is a spurious work on Miguel's Esther, which is a tribute to the Ramam, but that's not the Rambam. Um, it was fashionable to to sell works as as Rambam's works, so perhaps that's what happened there. There's even that, that even happened with the Medrash Hagadol and other works like that. So, um, but it's the Rambam did not write any works on Mikra. Maybe Rabbi Rambam, Rambam felt that uh, this is another way of filling in and supplementing and buttressing his father's legacy, and that's why he wrote the Pirush on Chumash. Um, but there, judging by the nature of the Pirush, it seems that he felt this would be useful. There was um. There was again. He draws on Ibn Ezra. He draws on his grandfather's own pirish. His father, when we know, wrote a pirish. There were other pirishes abounding, but his pirish wants to explain the simple meaning of the psukim. You know, wants to to analyze what has been said and, and brief and give you the short meaning of the psukim. But it's also focused with giving you the message of the psukim. Not so much just the literal translation, but also why why did this happen and what was the reason for the Torah telling us this? Um, very often, Rabbi Yehuda Raman Raman goes out of his way. To stress that there's a message for uh, for the, the serious student of the Torah in 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 what's told in the Torah, and, and that follows the precedent of the Rambam writes in Marinavuchim that the entire Torah is written to improve your days, to improve your your amuna, and to improve your midas. Rav Sadia writes similarly in in, in places. So Rabbeinu of Rambam may have been um, trying to show you exactly how. And in my introduction to Shemais, I wrote further that I think this also ties in with his, his vision for providing guidance for the, for the chassid. The chassid is supposed to look to the Torah for guidance. And he writes that in numerous places. He himself follows that advice in Sefer Amaspik, in the ethical part where all the midas that he discusses, he shows, and let me show you where the Torah stresses this midah, episodes in Tanakh that show you uh, the, the value of Anava and the value of Bitachin. And the value of his this, which is a you know a solitude, one of the pietistic practices. So he, he finds you precedence in the Torah for all these things, um, and he writes he even writes explicitly that the chassid is someone that should look for the meaning of the Torah and live according to the meaning of the Torah. The things, the message that the Torah gives over, not explicitly, he should seek to understand it and follow it. That might have been another motivation for writing this period was to bring that message out. 
And uh, that's why uh, we'll find him sometimes highlighting this message. Like, for example, where the Torah writes that Avram Avinu made a big suda, when Yitzchak was weaned, Avram Avinu made a big suda for all the locals, all the non-Jewish locals that he was working so hard to influence. Abin Avram Aram says, why does the Torah tell us this? Because the Torah wants to show you that you should be generous, you should be expansive, and that you should be more of a mabrius. You should have the adivas and the generosity of spirit that Avram Avinu had. So, uh, and he talks about, about Yaakov Avinu recounting to Lavan about how despite all the trickery and all the, and all the, you know, all the, the sly deals that he had been dealt, he still acted loyally and faithfully and devotedly to, to Lavan's business. And Rabbi Ram writes, that's the Torah is telling you this because it wants you to act this way with your boss. Everybody has problems with their boss. Still, be loyal and devoted just like Yaakov Avinu was. In fact, he'll sometimes even cite ex- negative examples. And I know this is a contentious point in, in recent generations. Um, I once heard a shir from the late Rabbi Sprecher, Rabbi Dr. Sprecher, where he highlighted the difference between Rabbi Shamsh and Rafael Hirsch's approach and Rabbi Chaim Brisker's approach. And he said, Rabbi Chaim Brisker says we can learn from the obvious, but only positive things. You can to attribute to, to learn you know, from their, you know, to avoid a negative, attribute a, a, a negative example and learn. But he says, Rav Shantar Fahal Hirsch does do that. Rav Shantar Fahal Hirsch famously says that uh, Yitzchak's treatment of Yaakov and Esav is to teach us, you know, not to follow that approach. So, uh, you know, in a similar vein, you, we have, uh, you know, you can find a hint of that in Rabbi Ramban Rambam, where he writes that the story of the episode of Dina was is told over in, in parts of Yishlach to teach us that we have to be more vigilant and protective over our women. Can't let them, you know, roam the countryside. Again, this is, this is a value that was obviously had a different meaning for people in, in, in Muslim Egypt where Bavram Rama was writing, but he sees that that's the lesson of the Torah in this case. Don't, don't let Dina out like Yaakov did. Yeah, you have a similar approach to the Ramavinu. I mean, what more do you have to say? Also, I mean, we, we can go from here. We can ready. We'll, we'll come back to, to we'll, we'll discuss the manuscript and the, the translation, all that stuff, I guess, a little later. Once we're ready here, what, what do you have to say about the, the style? I mean, you've already talked a lot about the stylistic thing that he goes through, but are there anything else you would add about the style of the commentary? So it's important to understand what the Pirish is doing. You have to understand the Pshat Mahalath of the Rishonim. It's very, very hard to appreciate Rabbi Ramana Rambam if you do not know, um, you know, what motivated Parshanim like Ibn Ezra and Rajbam and Rabbi Sadia going. We don't, you know, we're not, we're not taught this in Yeshiva. We were brought up on Chumash Rashi and then later we were exposed to Ramban. Who's, who's although he has certainly has an appreciation for pshat and and will and will uh, point that out often enough, but still it's 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 Ramban's peerish as he himself says in his Akdama, venerates the Rashi's approach, and the Rashi's approach is is not consistent with uh, the pshat approach, and Rashi himself admitted that to his grandson the Rajbam famously. So it's it's hard for um, a typical you know. If, 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 if all you know is what you were taught in yeshiva, it's hard to have an appreciation of uh, Rabbi Yenor of Ramban Rambam's approach to Chumash. So I think it, it's worth spending a minute here just uh, explaining what is, the, what is the, the Pshat approach. What is it? Now, Rashi does say occasionally that he, that he you know, emphasize that out of all the Midrash, he's picking the Midrash which fits best with Pshat. Or I didn't get into this far, you know, far afield Midrash because I'm Anil Yashir Pshut Shamikra. 
Basi. So we know the term pshat, but that's not what I mean when I say the, the pshat approach. Because Rashi's approach is primarily explaining the Chumash the way it was explained by Chazal. And the pshat approach seeks to say, let's understand the Chumash the way you would understand it without knowing Chazal. Let's just see what Chumash itself says. Now, there's two very divergent expressions of this pshat school. There's the Rashbam's school, you know, the sages of northern France, who, and later southern France, who explored pshat, and then there's the Ibn Ezra coming from the Gionic and, and the Andalusian. Andalusian is a term for Muslim Spain. You know, the Ramban's Spain is no longer Andalusia. That was it was it was governed by Christian. It was Christian Spain, and they had a very different culture than Muslim Spain. So the Andalusian approach, which is which which is is an offshoot of the G- earlier Gionic approach. Celebrated by mostly by Arab Sadia and Rabhai and Shulman Khafri and, and different uh, levels of variations. But that's a different Pshat school. And uh, without belaboring the point now, it's, it's, it's a long schmooze for another time. But the Rajbam's Pshat approach asserts that the supremacy belongs to Rashi's approach and Chazal's approach. The true meaning of the Psukim is what Chazal says is the meaning of the Psukim. And the other, you know, Pshat is also worth something, and that's worth exploring, because it's another level, and if Hashem wrote it in a certain way, it must be that there's some value in understanding it. What value is somewhat dubious, because if it's not Chazal's approach, so, and it's not the true, it's not the quote-unquote true approach, so what is the value? Rashbam never makes it perfectly clear what is that value, but it's definitely secondary to, uh, to the Chazal, to Rashi, to the Rashi approach. The Ibn Ezra, on the other hand, he says, no, the Pshat is the true approach. And what Chazal tell you is said for a purpose. Sometimes it's an asmachta, sometimes it's musr, sometimes it's a remez. But the true approach is pshat. Now, a very, very interesting um, outgrowth on this dichotomy is that the Rajbam will sometimes be even much more extreme in his pshat than Ibn Ezra. And the reason is because pshat is anyway not the true meaning. It's just another additional meaning. So it could be anything. It doesn't have to stim with halacha. It could be totally against halacha because it doesn't matter. It's, it's not binding. It's not authoritative. It's not the quote-unquote true pshat anyway. So he, he's now permitted to go very far afield. He even goes so far as to say that Chazal themselves may not have been aware of pshat because after all, why should they? They know the true meaning. And pshatim are something which he calls mischachim b'chalyom. They're, they're discovered every day. They're, they're new. They change. It's they're not they're not authoritative, so there's anything can be pshat, anything can pass as pshat as long as it sounds like pshat. That's the response. So he's much you know it's, it's free and loose pshat because it does not have to be authoritative. The Ibn Ezra, on the other hand, who's fierce about pshat and how how pshat is so important, so true, he's also now constrained to make sure that his pshat jives with halacha. His pshat because it's if it's true and halacha is true, so it, the pshat has to jive. Which is why the Ibn Ezra, you know, some people find it curious that the Ibn Ezra will sometimes quote Karayim right, left, and center without any hesitation. And then sometimes they'll go on a tangent and curse them out, and most vile you know, play of words on their names. And, and, and you know, this guy's a Nachash, and this guy's a serpent, and this guy's a Shur, and all kinds of things they will say about different Karayim. Why is that? And that is because he feels that if they take their shot against Halacha, then they've got to be, you know, they've got to be, you've got to, you've got to eradicate such a shot. So a shot that goes against Halacha can't be true shot. So it's an interesting dichotomy, which is an outgrowth of their different approaches. So the, um, the Ibn Ezra follows the Gionic shot approach. 
And sometimes the the Ebenezer himself goes a little too far for the Ramban's liking against the against the, the shot of, uh, you know, against the explanations of Chazal, but never against Halacha. I mean, not, certainly not overtly. And if, if, um, in, uh, if, if it does seem like it's against Halacha, there must be a good rationale for it. Because the Ibn Ezra is not, he, he himself avowedly is sticking with the Halacha, like he says, and, um, and, uh, and the Ramban will sometimes call him out for it, because the Ramban knows that the, in, you know, that the Ibn Ezra should agree with him in these cases. So that's the Pshat approach of the Geonic school. It's understanding the Pesukim at their plain meaning. And there's, and, and, uh, and, and, and if Chazal say otherwise, it's an Asmachta or some other unauthoritative explanation said for a purpose, but not, not to be presented as the true meaning of the Pesukim. And this is, uh, this, uh, Ibn Ezra didn't invent this. We sometimes look at the Ibn Ezra as a little bit of an outlier because we're not used to this, but the Ibn Ezra is really representative of a very full school full of the, you know, all the Geonim and, that preceded him in Spain and going back to Ripsadia going, that's the approach they took. And this is also the approach of the Rambam and Marinavuchim often enough. And, and that's the approach of Rabbeinu Avram and Aram. So you can't appreciate um, Rabbi Avram without understanding Pshat. And that's why I dedicated a big portion of the Akdama and Baratius to understanding what is the Pshat Mahal. So do you have an example you could share with the listeners to kind of show them <clears throat> what you mean by this? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, coming up, we're going to read the Parshat Akeda. Vir, Chazal, Korbarashi, they date exactly when the, the Akeda happened, according to which date it turns out that Yitzchak is 37 years old at the time of the Akeda, and that's when Rifko was born. It's, it's, it's fully mapped out in, in the rabbinic chronology. Um, now, Ibn Ezra already hints that um, he doesn't he doesn't accept this as as pshat in the pesukim. He would he would uh, he's, according to him it seems that the simple reading is that Yitzchak was a little boy, a nar, a young lad at the time of the Akeda. So I don't know if the Rambam did or did not know Ibn Ezra. That's an open. It's an you know not the man but the the pirish. That's an open question. There's a very fine article about it by Isidore Tursky, which was included in the recent Hebrew, in, in you know the Hebrew volume Kamayin Hamasgaber. It's 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 there it's about uh, exactly to determine is there any concrete evidence that the Rambam did use a Pirish Ibn Ezra? We don't know that for sure. The letter addressed to Rabbi Rambam, Rambam, his ethical will, where he says, "Learn only Ibn Ezra," is, uh, is is accepted now in the scholarly world as a forgery. So that's that's outside of that. Is there any evidence? Not clear. But in this case, the Rambam quoted in the Pirish by Rabbi Rambam, Rambam echoes the same exact sentiments of the Ibn Ezra. And Rabbi Ramadan writes that even though if you look in the Midrashim, it'll tell you that Yitzchak was 37. If that was the case, then Yitzchak's role in the Akedah should be much more prominent. For a 37-year-old man to submit himself to be sacrificed for Hashem, even though he didn't even get the Nevoah, it was a Nevoah that was given to his father, Avinu, that should be a very, very important thing. The Pasuk makes no mention of that. Therefore, he says, I, I, I prefer to say, and he says his father, he quotes, he's quoting his father on this, the Rambam, that uh, that's not shot. And in the coin shot, he was, he, he, was, he was a young boy at the time. Now, what do you make of Chazal that say otherwise? So uh, people who see a Ezra, they'll kind of write this off. It's, I don't know, and they'll say maybe a Karoi put it in there. It wasn't really the Ezra because they don't understand the Pshat approach. The Pshat approach says that when Chazal said, this sort of uh, thing, they weren't saying it on authoritative tradition. They were exploring uh, an approach that looks at the psukim for 
allegorical reasons, for ethical reasons, and 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 it's a valid way of explaining the, the pasuk, but it's not the authoritative translation of the pasuk. That's the way they understood Chazal, and that's part of it. Harkens back to what we wrote about in the in the Maimar Al-Agadis, which is where the Ram, where Rabbeinu Avram details that Rambam's and the Goenim's approach to Agada was exactly like that. That the Agada was has very important value, but its value is not that it's the authoritative interpretation of of what they were talking about. That's not the value, and and that's that's uh, evident throughout the Pirish. And you know, this is a primary example of that where 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 the Rambam quoted by Rav Avram Baron says that uh, he you know he follows the Ibn Ezra's approach and says that. That not like the Majushim, but Yitzchak was actually a much younger boy. Another example, you know, you see this kind of approach where according to Chazal, and this is something where the Ramban has a very vocal dispute with the Ibn Ezra about whether Yecheved was Nailda Ben Hachaymais. Yecheved is the, is the 70th uh, soul, that the uh, 70th person that, that came down with Yaakov to Mitzrayim because she was born Ben Hachaymais, which makes Yecheved a very, very old woman at the time she gives birth. To Beta. So um, the Ramban quotes Ibn Ezra and, and, and takes great vocal issue with, uh, with, with the Ibn Ezra's approach. He, he claims it's, it's not like Chazal and it's terrible to question Chazal. Chazal said this needs to happen, so of course it happened. But uh, again, Senator Rabbi Raman Raman says, he says, if, listen, he, said, he, yeah, he didn't see the Pirish in the Ramban, but, he's, but he hedges his bet. He says, if Chazal had a drush, if they had a Kabbalah, if this is, they have this on, on, on authority that that's what happened, then I fully accept it. But if they didn't have it on authority and he's not sure, he says, then uh, then I would explain the Pesukim like the Ibn Ezra. So again, he, you know, he's not sh- just because Chazal said it by him doesn't mean that that's authoritative and not because he's casting down it because he believes Chazal themselves never intended to present it as authoritative. Some things they did have on tradition, some things not. That's why he has this uh, comment over there. You mentioned um, he quotes his father, the Rambam. I mean, this is something that, that's that's uh, I guess nice about the Pirish, not the right way to say it, is that there's a lot of quotations from the Rambam that we don't have from otherwise. You know, like you said, he did not write a commentary on Chumash, there's these various Likutim on Chumash, but he didn't actually write something. So what other interesting things does he quote from his father in the commentary? Very interesting things. Um, first of all, on, on, the, on the very big, you know, commentarial controversies, he will cite his father's opinion. You know, he had, he had gone through Chumash with his father, like, for example, did Yisrael come before Matan Torah? Did Yisrael come after Matan Torah? Where there's Machlekes in Midrashim, there's Machlekes in Chazal, there's Machlekes in Mefarshim. And he, so Rabbi Ram Ram cites the opinion, the various opinions. He says, to me, it seems from the Psukim that he came before. And, and that's, you know, and he quotes his father, and his father was also Machria like that. Um, in another, you know, the question which bothered all the, the great Mefarshim and the theologians of, of that time what exactly is the Shechina? What exactly did Moshe Rabbeinu see? What did the, the people at Har Sinai? They shouldn't come see. What does see mean? Does see mean an intellectual perception? Did Moshe Rabbeinu only have an intellectual perception of, of God? Did he actually see something visual? So, uh, you know, he, he quotes his father's opinion on it. His father says uh, you, yeah, that both are valid approaches, but his father, you know, the, the Ramam says you should best to understand this as an intellectual perception. And above Ramam, the Ramam says... You know, I I will offer uh, an approach which jives with what my father said, while at the same time making a, you know a compromise with the other mafarshim. He says it was both. He says it was um, it was a little bit. It was there was a, there was a physical manifestation of the intellectual uh, achievement that they 
real intellectual experience. It had a physical manifestation and, an, and, a, and a metaphysical manifestation. Both were true at the same time. He says, this is a perfect uh, pshara, perfect compromise to bring my father in line with the other mafarshim. And my father would, he would have no problem with this. He says, uh, you know, in um, various places like that, he'll, he'll bring his father's hachra on, uh, on, on issues that he treats in the commentary. Okay, so I'm um, going to go a little bit more out of order here. Uh, I want to discuss a little bit your notes and your edition. Obviously, there is the whole story of the manuscript. There's the translation and the, the more. But your 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 uh, edition. First of all, your notes sometimes take up half a page or even more. I mean, there are. When I tell the listeners who are not familiar with Sefer, there are hundreds of notes, and many of them are very very long. Um, and I mean that in the best possible way. I think it's really nice. So, what did you set out to do? What did you? I mean. I don't know what you talked about, your initial idea for the project. But I mean, set out to do it, actually going to publish it. What was your idea? What did the notes end up being, your notes on the commentary? I felt, and, and people may, may take issue with this. Uh, I've heard people that, that have taken issue with this, that the notes are too much. And maybe they're right. For them, the notes are too much. But I felt that today's day and age, if you, if you want it in any other format, you can get it. You can get a digital format if you want it. I'm going to give you the full experience that I had. I'm not going to skimp when I quote other citations from the Ramban or others. I, you know, who's going to go look it up? If I say, uh, you know, compare this to the Ramban's approach, which differs in a little bit of a nuance based on, you know, on a previous, you know, you know, dichotomy in, in their Pirushim, who's going to go look it up and, and figure it out? So I'll flesh it out and I bring it. Um, anything that I felt was relevant that will help give you a better flavor of what, you know, what Ramban is saying, where he's coming from, other things he said elsewhere. I'll bring the full quotation when he's when I say that the murder of Uchem is the background for for such an idea, for example, um, where he talks about uh, Yitzchak digging the wells, where you know he says that the reason he called the, the wells Asek business and fighting and quarreling. Why did he give them these names? Because you know Rabbi Ram writes because for Yitzchak having to deal with earning a living and the vicissitudes of just the getting by and digging and and dealing with other people for him that was a terrible burden. Because for Yitzchak, just Avodah Hashem was all he wanted. And uh, earning a living was uh, was a distraction. And that's why he gave, gives me this is what Rabbi Rambam writes. So I'll, I, I highlight that this is a, this is a very central concept in, in Meir Nebuchim, where the Rambam talks about the Avodah and writes about how even when they did business, their main focus was, was, was on Hashem all the time. And that's why they had the tremendous Hashgach practice that they had. So I, I, I'll quote the whole... I'll quote the whole citation there. Uh, if it's too much for some people, I, I can't help it. For, for but uh, I think I think uh, it's beneficial to those who want the, the full experience. They want to appreciate exactly the nuance and where he's coming from. Get a feeling of uh, of what went into it. Whenever I changed the translation, I felt that incumbent, uh, you know, to bring the original um, Arabic. People can look. You know, I didn't bring the, the the full Arabic text, but where I felt where I diverged from the existing translation, I brought the Arabic text what the original translation was, and then often I would explain why I translated differently. I'll give you examples even where such a term, such a concept has a different nuance in, in, in writings of the Rambam and Rambam and Rambam. So I, I brought I put it all out there. Um, maybe at some time I would work on a, an English edition, a user-friendly edition, uh, at which time maybe make it streamlined. But uh, now that the work is out there and available for anyone who wants it, I felt it was valuable to provide it. Yeah, if anyone wants to... Uh... Subsidize an English edition, email, email Ramesha. Anyways, 
Um, let's go. So, so the manuscript. Let's talk about the manuscript and its story. There is a story there. You mentioned kind of where the manuscript is from, but I want to talk about the manuscript. Uh, it's 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 an amazing uh, story in, in my mind, and it shows the fantastic Hashgacha Pratis for all the the farm we have today. Each safer has a story because they've had to survive. Every safer that comes down to us. Now we have Svarim stores. Now we have digital repositories of, of Svarim. Now we have uh, many, many people have, you know, ex, ex, very uh, extensive and expansive uh, private libraries. You know, Svarim are, are never more available than they are now, but till they got from when they were written in time, you're showing them earlier, till they were able to be printed and disseminated, especially in modern times, it was quite a journey. And it's each safer has its own act of providence. And I want to just uh, highlight that with the story of, Rabbi Rambam Rambam's Pirish, this Sefer was, like you said, it was written by Rabbi Rambam Rambam. It never was disseminated in his lifetime. And probably it's because of the exacting standards that he held himself to, which, which, is, which also, by the way, has echoes of the, the Rambam's own approach. The Rambam writes that in his letter to the Chachmei Lumil in, in France. He writes about how a person should never disseminate anything before he's had a chance to go through it, edit it, look through it as many times as possible. So Rabbi Rambam Rambam, in all likelihood, never disseminated his own peers because he, he died before he had a chance to uh, edit it and, and go through it. And, and that actually there's even some evidence, you, you know, it's written pretty, um, it's pretty extensive, although here and there, there's a Pusik with no peers. There's a Pusik and no peers. And I believe that it's not something missing from the manuscript, like has been suggested by in, in the earlier edition. But I think it's because Rabbi Rambam Rambam himself never got around to it. He wanted to write something here, didn't have the safer in front of him, wanted to look into it further, didn't write it. And he continued with the next Pasuk, leaving a blank spot for, that he can get back to later. So the Sefer was never fully completed on his end, and that's why it was never disseminated. There's almost no mention of it. I say almost because there is mention through Rabbi David Hanugget. Rabbi David Hanugget is the one who owned the library of his ancestors. Rabbi David Hanugget, Rabbi Avram's own son was Rabbi David Hanugget. Um, that Rabbi David Hanugget was responsible for leaving us with the Medrash Rabbi David Hanugget which bears almost no resemblance at all to the peerage of Rabbi Avram. Rabbi Avram's own son wrote a peerage, an allegorical a compilation of midrashim, which were had a practical use that the Nugget would use these midrashim in his, in his weekly sermons Shabbos afternoon. And uh, he would tell the people, give the people midrashim, that's what the people wanted. Scholars wanted the pshat, people wanted the midrashim, and that's what they got. So that's uh, Rabbi David, the son. Rabbi David's own son was also uh, Rabbi Avram. Rabbi Avram's son was Rabbi Yehoshua Hanugid, who left us Chuvay's Rabbi Yehoshua Hanugid, a safer, also devoted to answering the problems that the Chachmei Tamar had raised in the Rambam. And the last of the Negidim is Rabbi Yehoshua's son, Rabbi David, Rabbi Yehoshua Hanugid. This Rabbi David Hanugid is a scholar in his own right. He was the last Nugid to hold the post. For some reason, which we still don't know, we don't know enough about it, he left uh, in the late 1300s, he left Mitzrayim, he left Egypt and moved to Syria taking with him his library, which was a very extensive library of manuscripts, including the extremely valuable originals of many of the Rambam's own works and of Rambam's own works. Today, from among all the Rishonim's works, I think the Rambam is unique. That's the only Rishon where we have an original autograph written by a Rishon. We have copies of a lot of Rishonim's works written in medieval times, but the actual the autograph of the Rishon, is, it's very, very rare. Maybe not Impossible, but very rare. We once spoke about a tshuva from of the Marik in the original. It, it's you may have some, but a, a safer of the magnitude of the Rambam that was copied and as popular as the Rambam to still have the original is it's it's unreal. And we have many volumes of the Rambam's Pirush Mishnayis 
that came from this library of Rabbi David The most authoritative text of Mishnah Torah comes from his library, the Sefer HaChosim, known as Huntington 80, I think it's... Uh, it's a very authoritative work. It has the Raman's own signature where he says, this is not my copy, but it was copied from my copy. And that's as early, the earliest one we have. We, the Raman's Mishnah we don't have, but his, the copy with his signature, we do have the Raman's, like I said, the Pirsha Mishnahis, we do have. We have five of the six volumes that he wrote of Pirsha Mishnahis. So this was all in the library of Rabdavid David HaNugget. And Rabdavid David HaNugget learned these farm. He wrote Haggai's on the side of them. He had a lot of other farm as well, in philosophy and medrash and halacha, parshanis and, and poetry. He had you know, loads of farm on medicine, a lot of stuff. So this library came with him to Syria, Aleppo, where he, where he landed up. And uh, it's probably stayed in the family's possession for some more generations. In the 1600s, the Christian, um, you know, the, the Christian government from England had a mission set up in uh, Syria for the businessmen who were, you know, occupied on business ventures there. And they had their... They had, uh, a, you know, they had different uh, scholars at the time. These uh, at the time, the, the church was uh, very, very interested in Hebraic studies, and they published a lot of scholars. Uh, they, they produced a lot of scholars of note, and uh, these missionaries who were who ministered out there in uh, Syria and the Levant were on the hunt for manuscripts. They had an obsession with getting old manuscripts, and they would they had money, a lot of money, so they managed to acquire a lot of these valuable manuscripts. Um, in particular, the, the one that interests us now is uh, Robert Huntington. Robert Huntington paid good money from uh, maybe not the descendants, maybe at the time it was in other hands, but he bought a copy of Rabbi Rambam Rambam's Pirish. Now, this copy was commissioned by Rabbi David Hanugid, who, like we said, had the originals, most likely the original he had in his hand. And this copy was made for him in Syria by a scribe who signed his name like in the aforementioned colophon at the end of the manuscript, that he copied it for Abdullah the Great Nugget. Abdullah the Nugget used this manuscript that was made for him. It's a beautiful manuscript, very readable still today. All these years, you know, 500 years later, 600 years later, still very readable, beautiful manuscript, besides the part that's missing. Unfortunately, maybe the binder didn't do as well a job as the scribe, but the part that we have is, is very eminently beautiful, easy to read. And Rabdavid Nugget used this manuscript and compared it with apparently the original or an earlier copy because he made corrections on the basis of an earlier copy. All along the margins are Rabdavid's corrections. So a line was missing. He supplied it. Sometimes there was a line that was originally only a marginal gloss, not from the original saver, which the copyist had now put into the saver. So Rabdavid Nugget made a notation that this line actually doesn't belong in there. It belongs in the Gillian. He wrote these notes in Arabic, but he went through the entire saver and corrected it. His, this copy with Abdavid's margins were, uh, his marginal notes is what was sold to Robert Huntington. Robert Huntington brought his considerable collection of manuscripts back to England with him, and when he died, they landed up in Oxford's library. And that's how we have the Pirsha of Ramadan until this very day, through the providential act of this Christian missionary buying it for probably a very uh, hefty sum from the Yarsham, who would otherwise have kept it, and it would have gotten lost like all their others for him. So now we have it. It was it, it was uh, this Huntington manuscript in Oxford Library is uh, still visible today, and I've, I've consulted it myself as I was working on the Peerage. I went through every single page and compared it, and, 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 and with with great profit. Not a few times I I've, I was able to correct the reading or see a nuance or understand where a gloss belongs because I was able to see the original manuscript. Okay, so now 
the original published edition. When was it originally published? How did that come about? And also the, the manuscript was written in Arabic, so that had to be translated. So what's the story with that? Uh, the, the very wealthy Talmud Chacham, Suleiman David Sassoon in England, who had his own nice library, he was connected with Oxford. He had discovered this manuscript in Oxford, uh, you know, sitting there, and he studied it and, and drew close to it, and he he felt right away that this is an excellent, excellent peerage, and it would be a, a shame to leave it languishing in, in the library without bringing it to the attention of the Torah world. So he commissioned um, uh, first uh, a scholar by the name of Yosef Duri. Yosef Duri was an you know an Arabic, uh, a native Arabic speaker. He commissioned him to translate this safer for him. Um, Yosef Dewey got through all of Beratius and then did not continue. At that time, Rabbi Sassoon found a young scholar, an amazing scholar named Ephraim Yehuda Wiesenberg, Ernst, the original Ernst Wiesenberg. Wiesenberg was uh, in Oxford at the time studying or learning and getting a degree, and uh, he had learned Arabic as well. So Sassoon now commissioned him to go over the uh, the translation on Beratius prepared by Dury, and also to translate the second volume of the, the on Shemois. So uh, this, I think he worked on it for about five years, he said, and uh, this edition came out in 1958, the Arabic on one side, the translation on the other, with notes and an extensive introduction, all by uh, this uh, Rabbi Dr. Wiesenberg. That was the original pr- uh, publication in 1958. There is an, another, probably a pre-publication edition, which is the edition that you can find in Hebrew books. I have a hard copy of it at home. And that is also published in 1958, where it said it was published for the bar mitzvah of the son of this Rabbi Sassoon. Apparently, Rabbi Sassoon, you know, it was almost ready, and, but not quite ready. There, the last few pages, there are some changes in the, with the later, fuller edition. But the main uh, distinction is that this edition does not have uh, Wiesenberg's introduction. It does not have the appendix with uh, corrections and other things in the appendix. It doesn't have that. So this edition was apparently a, somewhat of a, a pre-publication edition just in time for the Bar Mitzvah, um, but it was later finished and finalized by, by Wiesenberg, and then, you know, the edition in the same year is the, the more readily available or the more commonly known the fuller edition with it, with his introduction. And then we had later on editions that were just the Hebrew without any notes, without anything. The edition that I used, that I was introduced to, did not have the notes, did not have the Arabic. They took out... Uh, of course, they took out the introduction as well. This edition was apparently uh, sanctioned by by the ears of uh, of Rabbi Sassoon. But since I, I, my my read on this, and maybe somebody knows more information, I've heard other uh, stories which may may or may not be true. But my read is that uh, since the permission came from uh, the Sassoons, the Sassoons felt they had a right to the text, but they couldn't get permission on the on the whole safer, which was. Was even though they had uh, sponsored the work, but it was really Wiesenberg's intellectual property. So they just felt they can give the uh, text over. I'm guessing there may have been uh, some some other motivation here as well, maybe less than savvy. I don't know. But uh, so the, the the text that was available did not have the Arabic, did not have any notes. Now the notes included the the Maramakaimus. It included where the psukim are, included the references. All that was gone. So now you just have one block of Hebrew text, which uh, you know was. Very hard to read, but that was the only edition that was available when I when I came you know came on the scene, and even that was uh, hard to find and, and out of print. But that was all that was available. So now your edition again, leaving aside the notes because that we discussed already. You went. What did you go and do to the text? And and anyone will, who will see 
Uh, your addition, I'll just say you have the, the psukim, any, any, anytime he's commenting on a pasuk in, you know, bold font. And then you have a bunch of different things going on, different fonts, brackets, what, and you do explain this in the introduction of each volume, but what, what did you do? I was trying to, and I was not, and I admit, I was not fully successful. I was trying to make the text just at least appear, um, uh, appear more user friendly. It's still somewhat uh, complicated, but I, but I think it's, it, it can be navigated. The original uh, Wiesenberg text, when Wiesenberg had, had two approaches here, when he felt that a word will help the translation, even though it wasn't actually a literal translation, he would add that in parentheses. When he felt, and he took a lot of liberty in this regard, and I'll get to that in a minute, why? But when he felt that the original Arabic, their Arabic was missing something for whatever reason, so he would supply it in the Arabic in brackets and then corresponding translation also in brackets. So someone looking at the Hebrew text would see words added in parentheses and words added in brackets. With the uh, original edition would be explanatory notes. He would understand that the bracketed insertions are insertions where where Wiesenberg amended the Arabic text and the, uh, the additions in, in insertions in parentheses are where it was just to help with the flow, where it would, to make it read better, but it was not representing anything found in the original Arabic. Now, the edition that I used, which did not have any notes and did not have the Arabic, this was terribly confusing. Uh, you know, modern convention is that parentheses are taking something out, brackets are adding something in, but uh, it didn't make any sense in this regard. Why are something's parentheses or something's bracket? It, it was totally and utterly confusing. And until I went and found and tracked down the original, which was uh, with, with some considerable effort, I had no idea what was going on. So uh, I decided that I'm going to adopt a much more user-friendly uh, approach. I'm not going to have all the, no, there's going to be no parentheses in the text. Parentheses are only going to be used in a smaller font to indicate a maramukim or some other, or a word of explanation, a, a translation. But instead, I'm going to have bracketed insertions where there is uh, grounds to amend the Arabic text. Now, some of these, Ara- some of these insertions in, the, in Judeo-Arabic were made by Abdavid HaNugget. Like Abdavid HaNugget annotated the text and, and showed where some lines were missing, words were missing. He added those in himself. So those bracketed insertions, I said, I'm going to leave them the same size and font as the regular text to indicate that these belong in the text, that part of the regular text. Whereas Wiesenberg's emendations based on what he felt was missing without any actual textual evidence, I put those in a smaller font to differentiate it. So I don't know if this was the best approach. It may still be confusing some you know, people to different fonts and sizes, but at least I think I, I, there's, a, there's a system here. There's a method here. Now, I, I, I mentioned this earlier, and I have to point this out. It, it appears that Rabbi Dr. Wiesenberg was not aware, and through no fault of his own, just, this only came to light recently, with the added focus and attention given to Rabbi David I don't think he was aware that all these corrections on the side were made by uh, Rabbi David Hanugid. I don't think he appreciated that the person making the, the glasses was someone who... A, was a tremendous uh, scholar himself, and B, was somebody that likely had access to the original and was comparing it against the original. So he felt like, you know, if this Magia, this editor, took such liberties uh, with the text, it's probably a very corrupt text, and he felt free to take as many liberties as he can. Again, with, with the purest academic standard. He doesn't just uh, change a text without telling you, but he felt it uh, perfectly within his right to add as many as many you know insertions as as he saw, saw saw fit, provided that he would be able to 
it's, it's an act of genius on his part. He would only add in, in uh, addition if he could make that the first letter of his addition would be the same as the first letter of the where the text resumes, so that he could say that it's likely that the scribes skipped from this letter to the next letter. Isn't you know the complicated uh, Latin word for such a omission, but a scribal omission. So he would insert that, and every time he would add in a word, he would make sure that the first letter of his Arabic text would 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 uh, would be the same as the uh, where the text does resume after his brackets, or sometimes the last letter of of it would, would fit with the last letter. In some cases, he managed to do both. It's an act of genius, but it's uh, it's totally totally un, un, unbased and unfounded. I found in, in further uh, manuscripts of, of Rabdavid Anugid where he quotes from this Pierce that he had. I mentioned earlier that it's almost never cited. The only person who does cite it is this Rabdavid Hanugid. Rabdavid Hanugid, when he quotes from this Pierce that he had in hand, he quotes it in his other glosses. He always quotes it exactly, exactly the way we have it. Larabes chaseris viaseris. You know, if the word is missing a letter, which Wiesenberg thought he should add in, it's Rabdavid Hanugid quotes it exactly the way we have it. So. It's it's um the felt that this is an accurate text. I said, who are we to change it? So I tried as much as I can to restore the text. If, if I if I couldn't read it without Wiesenberg's edition, I left it in there. I felt it added. If I felt it added, I left it in there. But wherever I could, I tried to go without them. So my text, I believe, is much cleaner. Again, it might be complicated, but I think it's still um it's, it's a more faithful representation of the original, and it's also much easier to read. I don't want to sound like I'm uh, casting any aspersions on, on, on the scholarship of, of Rabbi Wiesenberg. He was an amazing scholar. His work is amazing. Um, his notes are a different style. They're not, uh, they're not user-friendly at all. He's very concerned with textual issues. So I've, I've preserved what I could from his notes in my notes, but I've always expanded them and, um, and made them much more uh, user-friendly. So his he definitely deserves credit for his contribution. Um, I just felt there was room to, to to build on what he did, and I think I've done the best I can at this point. Yeah, I think in introduction you read it's like a numerous, like spotted. So I, I think you did a better job, but I will will just say one slight criticism, but not much you could do about it, as you explained. It, it also has a bunch of different parentheses, brackets, different text, big, small. Like you explained, there's nothing you could do. You fix it up. But What I could do is, if I was making my own text and starting from fresh, like again, if I was doing an English edition, so then I would I would uh, translate in a way which which would which would obviate the, the need for all these insertions. But again, I wanted to preserve the text except for where I was fixing the translation, and that's why uh, I, I did the best I can with within the parameters that I set out for myself. Again, it may not be the it may not uh, ultimately be the best approach, but I felt that this is the best way to go about it for where I was, and that's that's uh, what I've done. Right, I think the only thing that I would point out maybe in the next edition, which we'll get to in the next edition of this, would maybe be like right on that first page within, you know, there's like a legend. Yeah. Just because it does, it, it's in the introduction, but it's hard to see. A lot of times those farm they have, you know, this font is this, and this is this, That's this, a very this. very good idea. Just putting it as like a, like a box. Someone could just quickly flip to and reference it. Oh, okay, what's going on? What's where? Something like that. But it is very, very nice for those that are not familiar that this can see it. Okay, so let's... Um, you mentioned Abdov and Anagi. Let, let's talk about something before we get back to just, just finally this. You, uh, something you, what you're working on now, and you just wrote an article in uh, Mechilta, the fourth edition of the Mechilta Journal. Those that are not familiar with, uh, we can really, I, say, I guess, save that for a future episode to discuss specifically. But maybe you want to mention that or anything else you're working on. Yeah, sure. Uh, Rabdov um, and Anagid, this, this last Rabdov, Rabdov the second Nugget, Rabdov the son of Rabbi Yoshua Nugget, um, he's 
he left behind the besides for all the manuscripts that he that he learned and left behind and, and they commented on. He wrote a number of his own svarim. One of the svarim he wrote was a Pirish on Chumash. Now this Pirish on Chumash did not survive in its entirety, but uh, from the fragments we have, we can see it was quite a, a rich uh, Pirish in its citations of sources which are long lost. In its uh, girsays are of course important, and um, so one such fragment is the one I published in the in the Mechilta Journal. Uh, there's, there's hopefully more. I've been mining other fragments for citations of Avraham Rama, who he does quote in the Spirish. When I first found this, uh, this, these, these manuscripts, which are available online at the JNUL website, in their earlier uh, website, they did not say whose Pirish this was. They just said this is a, you know, the fragment that I published. They said it was a, a philosophical Pirish on Shemois. And when I was looking through the Pirish, and I noticed a, 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 a quotation from Avraham Rambam, but it was prefaced by Reish Aleph. Bez, hey, hey. And I was like, who's that? And then I figured, oh, that's Rabbi Avram ben Harav Hamoira. And I, I checked it, and it was consistent. So I figured out who it was. I said, you know, this must, who had this period? It must be Rabbi Avram Hanogin. And then sure enough, at, at, you know, at a later stage, the JNUL updated its website with more information from, uh, with input from various scholars and librarians. And they said it's, it's assumed, it's not definite, that this might be the, a safer written by Rabbi Avram Hanogin. Uh, I was able to uh, verify that, and that's the, the piece that I published. But I've, I've continued to mine, uh, you know, the other unpublished fragments for for more citations of Rambam and Rambam, and I think I found a few more that can help fill in the missing part, as I mentioned earlier. What's um, what's what's important in this in this context is is getting back to um, I said about, about almost nobody quoting the safer. Someone brought to my attention. That Chuvas uh, Ridva, sorry, Chuvas Radvas, Radvas Ben Zimra from Mitzrayim in the 1600s, the late 1500s, he does quote Rabbi Ramad Ramam in, one of the, in, in, in the most recently published volume, the, the eighth volume, which is from manuscript. He does quote from the Pirish. Um, and uh, to me, that was astounding because I didn't know that anyone ever had the Pirish. As far as I know, only Rabbi Ramad had it. But once I've discovered this, uh, this safer from Rabbi Hanagah's own Pirish on Chumash, which quotes her Rav Raman Rambam, and uh, it seems likely to me that that will solve this problem as well, that uh, probably it's from Rav David Hanagah's Sefer, which Rav David says he did send to his friends in Mitzrayim, he did disseminate it some, that's probably where uh, the Radvaz uh, first uh, came, you know, came to see this, not from the original Pirish. Okay, so like I said, hopefully we'll, we can discuss that, but for Rashi's Vera, the, that uh, article that you just, and then that piece from the Dove Nugget you just published, is there anything, any other projects that you're working on now? I touched a lot of fragments in, in the, you know, a lot of Geniza fragments. You know, the Geniza is so searchable now with the Friedberg Geniza project, and uh, a tremendous debt of gratitude is, is owed to, this, to Doe Friedberg, what he has done. First of all, I, I, I was able to learn the Judeo-Arabic of the Pirish from the, you know, part of his, his portal is a Judeo-Arabic corpus. And uh, you, you can search it as digital. You can search any word and forms and roots. And so that, that was immeasurably helpful, as well as the, the, the main part of this website is the, is the digitalization of all the Giza fragments. So I was able to use Giza fragments to supplement, um, kind of sometimes Rebbe Hanahel Ben Shmuel's Pirish, the, the, the father-in-law that we mentioned earlier. So I, I was able to find uh, previously unknown pieces of the Sefer Hamastik. I found one piece where he quotes his Pirish on Chumash. That's how I figured out, oh, this must be uh, Rabbi Rambam Rambam, because he quotes a Pirish that he says in Parashat Yisrael. I brought this to the attention of uh, Professor Friedman, 
And Professor Freeman wrote a whole article of it where he thanks me for bringing this, uh, or identifying this fragment and bring it to his attention. So, you know, there's a lot of other such fragments which, over, you know, I felt that it would, it's a shame to leave them languishing. You know, I used what I could in the notes. So I want to go back and all the, particularly the pieces of, of the Sefer Hamaspik and maybe um, Rabbeinu Kanadal Ben Shmuel's own Pirish. I've, I've, I have that in mind. I've done some rudimentary work on that. I want to use that, and uh, I envision perhaps putting a, a supplementary volume on Chumash from all the fragments from Rav David and from Rav and pieces from the Masbik, and maybe as a supplement. And this might encompass more than just Bereshit Shemais. This might also, uh, you know, taking if I include the Chuvis of Rabbi Rambam and Rambam and parts of the Sefer Hamasik where he talks it, it might, uh, you know, a volume that would cover commentary on uh, of Tanakh from this from this school. Okay, um, so I will put links on where to purchase Bracer Shmois and I got this, but let's talk about are you looking to do a, do a new edition now? Or, you know, you printed these a while ago. Are there not many more copies left there's, around? There's almost nothing left. I, I have almost none, none myself in, in my inventory. Um, this farm stores may have some, I, you know, if you can, if you can get it, great. But um, we're, almost, we're almost done. Baruch Hashem, it's, it's really been uh, very well received. I, I I have not had to worry about them. They were chopped up, with, and, and the feedback has been tremendous. It's been very positive. Thanks, knocking to you for your help. So uh, Baruch Hashem, it's uh, we're almost sold out. And I, you know, to put a new edition, I don't want to just reprint it. I've had you know so many you know people have brought the comments, clarifications, and corrections. So I've got the I've got a file of about you know you know about a hundred corrections on each and editions. For each of these, uh, you know, each safer, you know, so I feel like I really want, if I'm going to do it again, I want to revise, make a revised edition, which is expensive. So uh, I, I don't know how fast I'll be able to do that. It's a, it's, it's a kind of, you know, a lot of authors have this. They don't, you know, to, to reprint is easy and cheap, but once they've had additional material, they don't want to just do a reprint. So we're not sure. And I, I, again, another plan also is, is a, an English translation, which would enable me to be more you know, to implement the, the, the kind of text that I would like, which may, may be much more user-friendly as well. Okay, so if anybody wants to help out with the, you know, re-revised, slightly revised new edition, or whether it's in English, they can email you, mbamaiman at gmail.com. It's in the safer. I'll put it in the show's notes so anyone can help out financially, can email you um, about that. I do want to mention one final thing. I know that was supposed to be the final thing, but one final thing. I forgot that you do have a number of Haskamas in the Bereshis and the Shmois edition. Do you want right. to mention those? Who you got those from and how you decided uh, to go about those? Yeah, the Bereshis one, I, I was learning, uh, I was I was in, in Lake with the Yeshiva's Kailo. So I went, to, of course, to the Rosh Yeshiva, to Malkiel, with Hifar Haskama. I went to, um, I felt, you know, I, I felt of David Cohen. I had seen it. He has an interest in Rishonim. He has an interest in in, in Rabbi Avraham and Rambam. I, I not to him. I felt Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky would be a good askam because my father has learned by Rabbi Shmuel, and I had spoken to Rabbi Shmuel. He was very warm and friendly, so I got from uh, Rabbi Shmuel as well. And then I felt just uh, for the family connection, my grandfather. I would have loved to have a lot there for my grandfather, but my grandfather passed away as the sefer was nearing completion, and and and, uh, and he was always very interested in the project. And and in a way, the sefer is a dedication to his memory. So um, my father's uh, my father's organization, it's a shul and a publishing company that's you know named for my grandfather. So they they uh, 
they it's published under the auspices of this organization. So my father provided a letter, and then I felt the oldest rabbinical member of our family is Rav Chaim Ben Aliel. I asked him also to grace it with a haskama. Um, I didn't really want to go shopping around for haskamas, but these I felt is uh, is, is appropriate. So I went to them for haskamas. After the Sefer was published, there was very warm feedback. Or Yankel Drillman reached out to me. He loved the Sefer. He offered to write Askama. My Rosh Yeshiva, you know, where I'd learned in Edison Yeshiva, Rabbi Yosef Eichelstein offered to write Askama. Um, another one of my Rabbeim, Rabbi Meir Mazuz, who I'd sent this farm to, he sent in a letter. Rabbi Yisrael Shilat was very grateful, you know, when I had sent in the Sefer. And he was, he was happy to write Askama. So the, that, those Askamas those are more feedback from the original Sefer, but uh, they, I think they do add to the color and dimension of the, of the readership of the Sefer. I think it shows a level of appreciation. Uh, the second, you know, Bereshit had sold out right away, so I, I did issue a, a smaller run, a revised copy, and then um, my, uh, the Edison Yeshiva, which is the Rabbi Jacob Joseph School, they offered to, to subsidize the, the new prints, and that's why uh, I, it says on, on the title page, Rabbi Jacob Joseph School Press, and I'm very grateful to them as well for their help, and of course uh, I owe them a great... Uh, Deal gratitude for for my intellectual growth and development over the years. Okay, very good. And and for those that aren't familiar with how it, the safer looks, by the way, uh, for those maybe some are familiar with the more famous Schwartz edition of Marinavuchim two volumes with the blue and it has the the picture in the front. Like you mentioned, we discussed how the Rambam we have his own handwriting. One of the few Rishonim of Ram is the same way. So you have the the front cover is a uh, fragment from with his own handwriting and it's signed off Avram Baramisha. Yes, yes. I, I, I thought that was a very beautiful touch. Like you mentioned, the Schwartz Rambam, I wanted something that looks like that. I, I wanted a, a safer that is that looks like it's worthy of holding the very, very hush of a safer. And, and that's why we settled on a very unique uh, design, which I, which, you know, does mirror the Schwartz edition uh, a lot. And uh, yeah, the, I think it's a great feature that added a uh, facsimile of of Rabbi own handwriting. I think it's a, it gives it a very personal touch. Yeah. And this is all done beautifully uh, by uh, by uh, Rabbi Shemanowitz from uh, Ali Zayas. They I had a very good experience working with them and publishing the Safer. They're very helpful and very professional, and they do fantastic, beautiful work. I was going to say we need to mention Shimmy. Uh, I know he, <laughs> he won't be happy if I don't mention him. So we should mention him. And he did a really nice job. And the cover, like you said, the, the whole cover the design looks really nice it looks very you know prestige i don't know what the right word is and the inside also a lot a lot of the, the it's, different things it's that were beautiful going on. it's it's a I, I believe it's very befitting uh the, the, to have a, a nice kaylee for the beautiful tire in there and um and and bar hashem the feedback uh, concurs everybody i you know i speak to they tell me how, how wonderful it looks and um and, and i had such a nice experience working with the company that um uh, i eventually joined the company and now i i work for Isaiah as well so uh, kudos to Shimon for a fantastic job and a, and a wonderful company as well. Yeah, full disclosure, right? Um, okay, so I mean that's that. So like I said, anyone interested in, in in purchasing a copy, I'll put up links. It is available in various farm stores. Mizrahi has it. Uh, new, he's not selling it used. He has some new, he sells news farms also. It's there. I don't know. Again, I don't know how many are still available, but it it could still be in farms or the final link. I'll try to put it up. But anyone interested in helping out financially for new new edition can email. Uh, Moshe. And uh, also, uh, I know this is a, a long episode, but there's a lot more that we didn't get to hear. There are some overarching uh, themes uh, that we can discuss, my Manadian themes. There's the, a lot the, of Murray You know, I, I got a real education in Murray working on the Safer. I to constantly go through it and break my teeth figuring out the, the more esoteric parts. I've, uh, 
I've read up as much as I can on anything to do with the Rambam and the Mordechai and his Shita and his Parshanas and his philosophy. So I've I've really got to, you know, working on this has been a real period of growth for me as well. Um, we couldn't do a lot of that, uh, you know, in this, in, in this uh, kind of general uh, discussion, but the notes do, uh, I believe, uh, will give you a very good feel for, for general Maimonidean studies. Okay, so we can, uh, yeah, we can, we can definitely do another episode if those are interested. Please email me, letting me know that you would like to hear much again. Come on to talk about these things. You enjoyed this episode. Let me know. And uh, as always, Ramesh, thank you for joining me on the podcast again. Thank you very much, Nadia. It was always a great pleasure. Uh, wish you a good night and all your listeners as well. It's luck and everything. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing privilege to be able to spend time with you and talking about things that we, we love. Thank you.